0: You may have seen or heard about the recent Christopher Nolan film called Inception. I won't spoil it for you if you want to go and see it and you haven't seen it yet. But very briefly, it's about planting an idea in someone's mind. Those planting the idea, however, for reasons rather complex within the plot, want it to seem like a spontaneous idea, like it's come from within somehow. And so they go to almost absurdly expensive and complex lengths. It's one of the most complicated films I've ever seen, I think, uh, to achieve this. They induce a mutual dream state where they build a a dream and then build a dream within a dream and then a, a dream within that dream and then finally they get round to planting the idea. Two and a half thousand years ago, though, the people of God hit upon a much cheaper and simpler and more open way of planting and reinforcing an idea, Uh, not just in one person, in a whole group of people. Welcome to the Psalms. And the way it works is uh, like this. The authentic beliefs and, and worships and struggles and emotions and hopes and fears and prayer and praise, appropriate for God's people, are written down in the Psalms. And simply by reading and singing or speaking these Psalms together, Those become planted in the congregation. All those things. Shared beliefs, shared worship, struggles, emotions, fears, prayer, and praise. It's not technologically sophisticated. It's nothing fancy. There's no CGI, but it's well proven and it works. So you might be a little bit surprised as I said that. So we haven't yet read this psalm together this evening. Uh, We've had it read to us very nicely. Alison read it to us very nicely earlier. We haven't all yet joined in with this psalm. Well, what we're going to do is we are going to read this uh, together later. But before doing that, I want to be sure that you understand what you'll be joining in with. And especially to understand the big idea at the heart of this psalm. Now, what is that idea? Well, you can see it there in verse 1 of Psalm 97. We've said it many times already this evening. The Lord reigns. In fact, that's also the title we're given this sermon series that we're beginning this evening. A series of psalms which we hope will wake us up from our dreamlike states and expose us to the wider reality in which we live. Psalms that will face, force us to face up to the truth, a truth that we may have been hiding from. Psalms that plant and reinforce the truth that the Lord reigns. Beginning tonight with Psalm 97. I'm going to look at this psalm under three headings this evening. Uh, first of all, the Lord reigns. Uh, then secondly, our reaction exposes our future. And then finally, our hatred of evil expresses our commitment. First of all, then, the Lord reigns. Now you can see for yourself, this is uh, the basic claim which spans the, the main part of the psalm,s how the psalm begins, verse 1. The Lord reigns. It's the conclusion in, in verse 9. The psalmist says, For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The Lord rules. There is no higher authority. But what exactly will we mean when we say together later, the Lord Reigns. Who is this Lord? What's he like? What kind of rule or reign are we talking about? Just how extensive is it? And what are the consequences for people subject to that rule? Well, what I hope we're going to see is that uh, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And what I especially hope we're going to see tonight is that he is both good good and powerful. Foundationally, fundamentally, perfectly good and almost indescribably powerful. And the combination of those two is so potent that it's enough to make the whole world tremble. We're going to look at those two things in turn, looking first at the goodness of the reign of God, especially from the first couple of verses. Let me read those again to you. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now to help us uh, see what's going on here, it's worth saying at this point and reminding you that um, this psalm sits within book four of the psalms. I don't know if you knew that the psalms are arranged into five books. If you turn back a, a few pages actually, to Psalm 90, uh, just a couple of pages, 599, page 599. And uh, you'll see that the book starts, book four starts with Psalm 90, uh, a a psalm or prayer of Moses. And uh, what people of God seem to be doing in this particular collection of psalms um, is two things. Firstly, they're looking back. They're looking back to the time of Moses And uh, they're looking back to that moment in history where the reign of God, the glory of God, was most powerfully visible in the world. For them, as they're they're writing these psalms, um, that moment is at the Exodus, when the Lord used Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt with great power. And then he met with them at Sinai to be their God. Okay, so they're looking back to that moment of glory, visible glory. But they're they're not looking back just with mere nostalgia for the past. They're looking back in the expectation that the the Lord is going to do this again. And he's going to do it again in an even more, much more powerful way, revealing his glory, not just locally, not just to to one nation, but to the whole world. That's the expectation they're working to. Anyway, if you turn back to Psalm 97... Uh, page uh, 603 again. Yeah, that does seem to be very much what's going on here. So we have been coming along on Sunday mornings recently. Um, this should uh, ring a few bells for you. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says this to the people of God about what happened at Mount Sinai. And uh, just pick out here some of the very similar language. So from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, says Moses, While it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. It's the the same phrase as here in verse 2. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of the words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow. And then wrote them on two stone tablets. So the picture is this. This is the Lord, the psalmist is saying, who in all his glory gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai. His rule, his throne, is founded on a perfect righteousness and justice. And from that foundation, from that throne, he is handing out the perfect way to live. And remember, as we were remembering just a moment ago, this is the creator of the world, the perfect way to live that he hands out at that moment is therefore consistent with the world the way the world has been made. That's why, verse 1, because the Lord rules and reigns, the whole earth is called to be glad, or literally to shout in exultation. So it's a strange sort of image, isn't it? The the earth shouting with joy, or or the shores, the distant shores, that's what we might say, the, the distant corners of the earth, rejoicing. I think we can get the sense of it. I was was listening on the radio to someone remembering back in in Britain to the the winter of discontent in 1979 uh, when there was rotting rat-infested rubbish piled high in Leicester Square. Uh, There were so many bodies apparently waiting to be buried in Liverpool that the authorities were contemplating uh, doing burials at sea. I suppose you could say there was a sense in the time when the whole nation, uh, the whole country, the whole of Britain was a groaning, desperate for a return to some sort of order. Or or think more widely in the world. Think about Somalia, uh, where there hasn't been an effective government since uh, about 1971. You know, we complain about their pirates. but Imagine what it must be like to live there. How that nation is groaning. Or think about what happened in Rwanda, the blood-soaked soil of Rwanda, crying out for justice. The ashes of Auschwitz groaning for the righteous rule of God. And what is true in these obvious cases must be true more generally. The whole creation has been groaning together, says the Apostle Paul, and well might it shout for joy when the rule of God comes in its perfect glory. So, perfectly good. But it's no good claiming that the reign or rule of God is perfectly good if if God doesn't have the power and authority to put that rule into practice. But the reign of God is not only perfectly good, it is also indescribably powerful. Look at uh, verses 3 to 6 with me. Let me read those verses to you again. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. God's reign is indescribably, visibly powerful. All the peoples will see his glory. And I guess of all the claims in in this psalm, I guess you may find this the the hardest one to, to swallow, the hardest one to process. Powerful? Really? Visibly powerful? Where? But of course the people of God in the Old Testament had seen this power. As before, what we're doing is looking back to the Exodus and to Sinai, when God did show his hand, as it were, when he did show his mighty hand, visibly showing his power, listen to this description of that event. This is from Psalm 77. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Or well, this from Exodus 19, Moses is saying, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Okay, so as before, we're looking back. We're looking back to that visible expression of the power of the Lord. But of course, the the psalmist is not just looking back. He's also looking forward. He's looking forward to a vision of not just the Israelites trembling at the Lord, but verse 4, the whole earth. Verse 6 all the peoples of the world seeing his glory. These things, the the exodus, uh, the events at Sinai, they're a bit like the cracks in a dam, if you like. Uh, We see them, we witness them through the the pages of scripture, and suddenly we realise that the pent-up power and energy behind it, ready to burst out at any moment. Or if you want something to to illustrate that power, think of of the film uh, 2012, if you've seen that film. Uh, I'd say it's not a great film. Probably the greatest concentration of cliches in movie history. Uh, but if you want to redeem something uh, from that film, then think about all the cracks that form over the surface of the earth in that film. Warnings of the pent up energy welling up in the core of the earth. And then when that all bursts out, All those expensive special effects of the earth crumbling illustrate very well what we're talking about here. There's fire. There's darkness. There's the earth shaken apart and consumed. There are hills melting like wax. Perfectly good. Indescribably powerful. It's a uniquely potent combination. You might remember the line from the... the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Susan questions the Beavers about the great lion Aslan, asking, "Is he, is he quite safe?" And uh, you might remember that Mr. Beaver replies, "Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, perfectly good, indescribably powerful." Not at all safe. But if that's true, what are the consequences? How do, we, how do we face up to this? This is our second point this evening. Our reaction to this, our reaction to this vision exposes our future, exposes where we stand with respect to the future. Our reaction to the goodness and power of the reign of God in verses 1 to 6 exposes where our future lies. Take a look with me at verses 7 to 9. And you will find two two kinds of people there facing two very different futures. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, well, worship him, you gods, says the psalmist. But verse 8, Zion hears and rejoices. And the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above God. So we've got this first kind of people. The first kind of people are those who worship images. And under the reign of the Lord, they're facing a future of shame. And we've got a second kind of people. They're somehow linked to Zion on Judah. We'll say more about that later. And they're facing a much brighter future, a future of joy. They hear about the, the uh, reign of God and rejoice. Now the first group, those who worship images, I, I think we can summarise as those who, f- who bet on false gods for their future rather than the true God. Now obviously people who take blocks of, of wood or stone and, and carve it into some sort of idol and then fall down and worship before it, uh, very obviously fall into this category. Uh, But actually anyone who rejects the rule or reign of the Lord and pushes them aside for something else, something else to trust for, for the future, fits in here too. So we shouldn't think that we can uh, wriggle out of this by technicality. If how I make my decisions is, say, dictated by my career, or sports, or by the love of money, or by the pursuit of a certain relationship. if It is dictated by anything apart from the rule of the Lord. Uh, if those are the things that, that occupy my thoughts and concerns uh, and not the Lord, well, then we fall into this category too. In the end, what I'm doing as I do those things is no different to the person who carves an idol out of wood or stone. And also, we might say, just as absurd. And we mustn't think they're being put to shame or be feeling, I don't know, slightly bad about ourselves or something like that. Think again about the goodness and power of the rule of God. It's a consuming power, verse 3. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Now, what about the other group? You can see from verse 8 that uh, these are people who are somehow associated with Zion and Judah. Uh, Now, that may mean absolutely nothing to you, Uh, but Zion was the hill in Jerusalem upon which stood the temple. Uh, It represented, at the time, a contact point between the Lord and his creation. It was the place of true worship in contrast to the kind of false worship that we've got described here in verse 7. In other words, people aligned to Zion... Uh, were aligned to the Lord. They were under his rule. They were with him in his purposes. And Judah was the tribe through, whom, uh, through which the Lord had promised uh, to bring blessing, first to Israel and then to the whole of the world. So I think we can generalise here too. And at this point, we, we especially need to remember that this psalm was written before the coming of Jesus. You see, as Christians reading this, uh, we can be crystal clear through the scriptures that it's Jesus for us who replaces Zion and the temple. He's the one who becomes the contact point between God and his creation. He becomes the focus of true worship. Uh, what's more, he's the Lion of Judah, we're told, in the book of Revelation, through whom God's victory comes and all God's promises are fulfilled. So as we read this Christianly, we read Jesus in these verses. Let me show you that uh, from the book of Hebrews. The writer of, of Hebrews in the New Testament, uh, this is from Hebrews chapter 12. This is what he says You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, can, that can be touched and that is burning with fire. The darkness, gloom, and a storm. The sight so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, says the writer, have come to Mount Zion. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus. So I want you to, to think carefully about your reaction to the, to the vision of the Lord the psalmist is bringing before us this evening. I think for, for all of us that should be a trembling Reaction—it's it's an awesome vision, isn't it? It's a terrifying vision, as, as Moses, Moses himself knew. But I guess the question we should ask ourselves is: What is it? What is our, What is our trembling tinged with? Is it tinged with a total despair, or a bitterness, or anger? Is it tinged with hatred towards the Lord and His people? At the moment, do you feel like shouting out about this in, in anger, storming out perhaps? Uh, does this vision make you want to have nothing to do with the Lord? If so, then it's probably best if you don't join in when we read this psalm together in a moment. Or is your trembling before the Lord tinged with something else? Now, it may well be tinged with a, a, some sort of self-despair as we're, we're humble before His majesty. But within that, is there, is there some hope? Is there some hope of joy, however tiny it may be? Some hope that the Lord may be planning, planning to bring you on side. Some hope that he may be planning to bring you with him into the future. Some hope that he, he may be drawing you in through Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Some hope of being part of his joy. If so, then it would be excellent to join in with this psalm and to do so with great confidence. But there's one final challenge to consider before we we can read it together. Finally then, our hatred of evil expresses our commitment. It expresses our love of the Lord, our loving commitment to him. Verse 10, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Now, most people, uh, I think it's probably fair to say, can recognise evil some of the time and do indeed hate it some of the time. You know, you might think it's an odd thing to do. To, you, you love someone by hating something else. But actually, we do all do that some of the time. So if you take most people, for example, to the uh, Imperial War Museum in London and you show them the photographs taken at the liberation of the Belsen concentration camp at the end of the war... And uh, most people will instantly recognize evil there. And they'll instinctively understand that this is something to be utterly detested. You know, it's right to hate it. The problem is, of course, that most most of the time we blur the definition. We blur the definition of evil. We allow ourselves to flirt with it at the edges, or perhaps more commonly, we allow ourselves to be bullied by those around us into joining in. But compare what we do to the definitive standard given to Moses at Sinai. Uh, you know, when originally all of this, this glory was being expressed, the Ten Commandments were be given, the definitive standard of what counts as good and what counts as evil. Compare ourselves to that, and the results are not so great. So, we, as we, we might think as we, we, we look through that list, Well, you know, all that stuff about honouring God, well, how old-fashioned. How old-fashioned, people say, and we believe them. Likewise with honouring our parents. uh, You can happily despise your parents, people say. Your parents are actually to blame for all of your problems. It's wonderful to despise them. We find it very convenient often to believe that. You know, we may not murder, perhaps, but there are plenty of other ways to hate people and to wish them dead. Adultery, other forms of sexual immorality—just a bit of harmless fun—we tell ourselves. Anyway, everyone's doing it. Likewise, the stealing and lying—everyone does it a little bit, don't they? It's fine so long as it doesn't get out of hand. We say, and we try to laugh it off when it does. That's the coveting things. What's wrong with that? That's the engine room of modern life, isn't it? And before we know it, we're not just flirting with evil. We've hitched up, we've moved in, we've got three kids, a mortgage and a Volvo. We are partners for life. Or rather perhaps partners in death and judgment because that's where it's all heading. But to be confronted with the reign of the Lord God, the glory of God as we have been in verses 1 to 9 of the psalm tonight changes all that. If we recognise that, if we respond to that Rightly, then we refuse to flirt with evil for the same reason that we don't flirt with drinking poison or picking up burning coals with our bare hands. If the Lord is there and will come with fire to consume all evil, as soon as we know that, the moment we know that, we drop it completely once and for good. And we no longer allow ourselves to be bullied into compromise with evil by our peers and by our culture. So look at... uh, Verses 10 and 11 again. The Lord is watching over us as we face that pressure to conform. We don't need to fear them. He has promised to deliver us from the hand of the wicked. He has promised to bring the righteous, that is, those whom He has aligned to Himself through Jesus, He has promised to bring those people into the light. He has promised those who have had a change of heart through Jesus a future joy. And in anticipation of that future joy, the psalmist knows it's right to rejoice in the Lord now and to praise his holy name. And what we're going to do now is respond to those calls in verse 12. We're going to do it immediately and directly by reading this psalm through together. And uh, now, let me say, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian uh, tonight, the one who one who loves the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you. Uh, if you would describe you that, you're sorry. If you would describe yourself that way, let me encourage you to use this psalm as an opportunity to reaffirm your faith publicly. Join in with the confidence of the psalm that the Lord does indeed reign, that He is good and powerful, and that the whole earth will see His glory, whether they like it or not. And use it as a public commitment uh, to respond to verse 10, to hate the evil that God will consume and destroy, to renounce it once and for good. On the other hand, if you can't yet accept this, then please don't join in. you know It's probably best if you can't accept this not to join in. If you don't feel aligned to what's going on in this psalm, if you don't believe it, then don't say it. But please do take the opportunity to listen again and ponder whether it might be true after all. But if the Lord has opened your eyes to his reality, his goodness and his power and his glory, perhaps for the very first time, uh, then joining in this evening would be an excellent way to acknowledge that. You can use this psalm to mark your entry into a new family and a new and very wonderful future. Please join me, if you would like, with Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who burst in idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgment, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked." Light is shed upon the righteous and joy upon the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you heart of the righteous. And praise his holy name. Amen. And we're going to continue to rejoice and to praise the holy name of the Lord in our, in our final hymn uh, this evening. It's also an opportunity, if you would like to, to contribute financially to the work here at Christchurch. Uh, But please do contribute first and foremost with your voices as we praise and rejoice in the Lord. Please stand. The Lord is King.